Welcome to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Kate Floros, a faculty member in the Political Science Department at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Today, I'm going to speak with Christopher Williams from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Professor Williams and I will discuss the recent election in Germany and European political parties. So let's get started in the Politics Classroom, recorded on September 29th, 2021. This is the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and you can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. With me in the classroom today is Christopher Williams, an assistant professor in the School of Public Affairs at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Professor Williams received a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and a master's and PhD in political science from the University of North Texas. Before joining UA Little Rock, Professor Williams held postdoctoral positions at Maastricht University, the European University Institute, and the University of Mannheim. He has published many academic journal articles on political parties in Europe and the US, and edits the Journal of Elections, Public Opinion, and Parties. Welcome, Professor Williams. Thank you for having me. I've been asking all of the professors that I've talked to this semester about how you got on the career path that you are on. So what led you to pursue a career in the teaching and research of political science and why particularly European political parties? It's, for me, it was a, it was a long road. You know, I went to undergrad at Mary Washington, small liberal arts college. I had no idea what it was I wanted to do. Absolutely zero idea. Um, actually, that's not entirely true. What I wanted to do was be David Letterman. Uh, but then I realized I wasn't all that funny. <laughs> <laughs> so plans changed. And this liberal arts education that I was getting, I had to take classes in just about everything. Right. Yeah. And I stumbled into a political science class, intro to political science. I can't even remember what it was called with a professor who just engaged me, just made me love this subject. I mean, I'd always been politically interested, but okay. this just the ability to the idea of political science of thinking about politics analytically, like all the time, mm-hmm. was the most attractive idea in the world. So mm. I majored in that. And, uh, you know, I could have been a better student. I think that's, <laughs> okay. that's, that's the case. Uh, in, in undergrad, that is, I could have done better. And, you know, the faculty at Mary Washington will attest to that, I imagine. <laughs> and so okay, I ended up graduating and uh, ended up working in DC for a year for a nonprofit organization and quickly realized this is not what I want. This is not anywhere near what I want to do. The nonprofit world is not for me. And so I said, okay, well, there's grad school, but given the fact that I wasn't a great student in undergrad, I needed to go get a master's degree. And Mm -hmm. I went to North Texas to kind of get that GPA up and turned out I loved academia. I loved doing research, right? I loved doing research on political science. It was exciting. And so why I ended up on European politics was... I came in wanting to study elections in the U.S. That was what interested me, right? I'd, mm-hmm. I'd been watching elections since I was a kid. And I mean, my first memory as a child was seeing the returns in the 1988 election between H.W. Bush and Dukakis. And it was just something that always interested me. And then I took this class in comparative politics and started looking at all of these different systems throughout the world, throughout Europe in particular, uh, the advanced democratic world, thinking, there's just such incredible diversity here, such incredible variety. This is so cool how all of these different things, like when you create a different system, it creates a different outcome. 
Yeah. Right. When you use a proportional representation system rather than this single member single member plurality system that the U.S. uses, it completely changes people's behavior, and that got me so so excited and engaged. And so I always wanted to understand why people were doing the things they were doing, particularly with regard to voting. And I saw just this wealth of opportunities to study things in Europe from a an American perspective. Right. And I thought it was really a great opportunity. And I've never regretted the decision to look at other countries again. It was just the perfect decision. Do Europeans appreciate being studied from an American perspective? Who are, who are you speaking more to, <laughs> Europeans or Americans? That's a really great question. I find that Europeans have no problem being studied from an American point of view. I started getting into the European Union. And I, I spoke with a number of people who study the European Union and are European. Okay. And I would say things like, the EU is really interesting because everyone says it's a, an experiment that's never happened before. And as an American, I say, well, that's not exactly true. Yeah. So the EU right now is 27 countries have come together, giving some sovereignty or some power. They don't want to, they, they don't like using the word sovereignty here, but giving some power to these, this international government the supranational government is the is the term that most european politics specialists use and early on it was very confederal in its constitution and it's slowly gained more power at this at this supranational level in brussels right mm-hmm. their capital and i always saw this parallel between the united states right after independence through this articles of confederation which were an absolute abject failure right right yes the EU didn't scrap it per se, but they've slowly moved towards greater federalization yeah. and greater power within the EU institutions. And I see this as a very clear parallel. The US just happened to do it in the 1700s. Right. But we brought together people who clearly saw themselves as different. Like I grew up in New York, and still to this day, we see ourselves as different from people from Georgia, like sure. distinctly different, right? And I mean, we're not even getting into Texans who see themselves <laughs> as their own country. Right? Sure. So these countries, these groups of people who saw themselves as almost an ethnicity or a nationality, or at least as an imagined community. Sure. And this is very similar to Europe. Of course, these imagined communities, these nationalities in Europe have been around a thousand years sure. or 500 years, whatever it may be. But they're doing the same thing. They're bringing together people who see themselves as different into a system of politics and governance that everybody has to live by. And it's a very similar process. I think in my experience talking with the politics scholars who are European, mm-hmm. I've had people say things like, I never actually thought about it that way. I've had very few people push back on that. Hmm. What I've actually seen, and you mentioned this uh, in your introduction to me, is I've also done some work in the United States. And some of that work has taken theories and lessons learned in Europe and, and said, well, do they work in the U.S.? Hmm. And, and oftentimes That's not find, usually how it works, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, even you talk to European politics scholars, we're, we're taking theories that were come up with, in, that, that were devised in the U.S. to explain what's happening in the U.S. and saying, do they work in Europe? Do they work in the U.K., in Germany, in France, wherever it may be? So I just said, well, there are new theories coming out of Europe about the way this system works. And do they apply in the U.S.? And I've gotten a lot of pushback on that from American politics scholars saying, Mm. well, no, the U.S. is special. It's different. It's not like Europe. And my response is always, well, can theories from the U.S. apply in Europe? And the answer is always, well, of course they can. (laughs) Well, it's a two-way street here, right? Right. Theories from the U.S. can't apply in Europe if theories from Europe can't apply in the U.S. Um, So this is actually what what I've noticed in my career is Europeans tend to be pretty accepting of this kind of like novel way of looking at, at, at European politics. The other way isn't always the case, though. <laughs> Let's talk about the German elections. But before we do that, you mentioned that there's a diversity of systems throughout Europe. So I want to talk maybe a little bit generically, but kind of big picture about the type of system that Germany has and how it's different from us <laughs> in the United <laughs> oh, States. Wow. Yes, exactly. So, so they have a parliamentary system 
we have a presidential. So yeah. I'm going to ask you to talk about that difference. And then we have what's called first past the post elections mm-hmm. and they have mixed member proportional representation systems. <laughs> so I'll ask you to talk about that difference. So, I mean, obviously in the United States, we, we have these direct elections for, of the president, right? The president runs in 51, 50 states plus the District of Columbia, whoever gets 270 electoral votes is the executive, right? Um, that means they get to enforce the laws, they get to make executive orders, they get to be in control of the military, et cetera. Very simple system. And I think every American probably understands this pretty, pretty clearly. The parliamentary system doesn't work in the same way. There's no direct election of an executive, okay. right? So you elect a legislature and in, in uh, Germany it's called the Bundestag, right? Okay. It's the parliament. And in the, part of, in the parliament, in, in the legislature, you get parties. So one party in Germany, for example, the Social Democratic Party now has about 28% of the seats after the election on Sunday. Um, And the Christian Democrats have about, I think it's about 26% of the seats. And they then have to form a a government coalition. So because the Social Democrats are the largest party, but they don't make up a majority, they're the plurality, but not majority, they have to form a coalition with other parties to try and get to that majority. Uh, number. So there's 735 seats in the Bundestag right now. Mm-hmm. So they would have to get to half of that plus one. 368. I wrote it down. Okay. 368. Yeah. <laughs> so they have to get to 50% plus one, 368. So they have to bring in other parties. So the social Democrats will look at say the free democratic party or the green party and try and put together a coalition. And what ends up happening there is the leader of the largest party in that coalition, usually the largest party, not always, but usually the largest party becomes uh, the executive and that government that they create. So you'll have the minister of finance, the minister of agriculture, et cetera. That's your government, right? So it comes directly out of the legislature, which means in most parliamentary systems, nobody votes directly for the person who becomes the prime minister or the chancellor or whatever you want to call it. Do they, do they vote for the person who is going to represent them or do they just vote for the party? This is, again, that diversity of, of okay. uh, systems. Say in the Netherlands, which has 150 seats in their legislature, the Netherlands is one giant district with 150 seats. People go out and they vote for the party that they prefer, whether it be the Labour Party or the Party for Freedom or People's Party for Freedom, or the Party for Freedom and Democracy, which is the far right, you know, they can vote for whatever party they want. And that party, if they get 25% of the votes, they get 25% of the seats, more or less. Germany always has to be more difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Germany uses this mixed member proportionality system, which means you actually, when you go and vote, you have two ballots. What? Yeah, you have two ballots. You live in a district. Okay. And you vote for the candidate you want from your district. Okay. And then on the second ballot, it's the party list. So you choose the party you want. So what they first do is they uh, figure out, okay, these are all the people who won their districts. So Olaf Scholz, who's the social democratic leader and likely to be the next chancellor of Germany, is from Hamburg, right? His district is in Hamburg. Okay. He won his district. So that's one social democratic seat. After they figure out everybody who won every district, they then top off. And what I mean by that is mm. if, if after the constituency vote, so that vote for each candidate leaves the Social Democratic Party at 22% of the seats, but they got 25% of the vote, they will add seats to make it more proportional. So does anybody kind of split ballot? Yes, right? all the time. Okay, it happens so all you, the time. You vote for a person who might mm-hmm. win, but that person's party may not win in your district. Yeah, exactly. And why would you do that? Why would you use that system or split your ballot? Split your ballot. Well, okay. So there are some smaller parties, right? So we know in the US, like a person might say, well, I don't really like the Democrats, let's say, but I really don't like the Republicans. My preferred candidate is the Green candidate. But that person's absolutely going to lose. Sure. Right. Welcome um, to 2016. Exactly. <laughs> right. So you vote for the person that you that that is the least objectionable of the two major choices in the U.S. Right. This is basic Duverger's law. 
In Germany, though, we have the same problem in this constituency seat, right? It's one seat. So smaller parties are unlikely to, to win a constituency. So what some of the smaller parties actually encourage people to do is vote for one of the larger parties, say the Social Democratic Party or the Christian Democratic Union or something like that in the constituency vote, but then use their party list vote to vote for their true preference. Okay. And so do they take the party list vote from the entire country and see how that splits out? It's by state. So Germany is a federated system like the U.S., right? right they have okay. what's called lands, right? Sure. Um, uh-huh. it's our, so in Bavaria, they will take the party list in Bavaria. So it won't be nationwide. Okay. Um, so it gets so even you, slightly more complicated. Right. So you could have a regional party. There is a regional. Is, there are a number of regional parties. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that could get enough, enough votes in their region to mm-hmm. get them a seat or two yeah, or whatever. Exactly. So, for example... The Christian Democratic Union, which is Angela Merkel's party, mm-hmm. runs in all parts of Germany, with the exception of Bavaria. And instead of the Christian Democratic Union running in Bavaria, they have what's called the Christian Social Union. Mm-hmm. And the Christian Social Union is called the sister party of the Christian Democratic Union. Okay. And so when you see it reported, it always says CDU, CSU, or mm-hmm. Union, or something like that. Yeah. It's because they always pull together. They're an immediate coalition, no matter what. They work together. But they are separate parties. Why? So this is the Christian Democratic Union, the Christian Social Union. Germany is a plural religious state, right? What I mean by that is most of the country is Protestant, Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Bavaria and also to another extent Baden-Württemberg, which is another state in Germany, are mainly Catholic. Okay. So these parties were originally created uh, to push back against secularization, right, in the 1800s, uh, in the 1900s. So... They formed differently because the Christian Social Union was formed around Catholicism, whereas the Christian uh, Christian Democratic Union was formed around Protestantism. Okay. Right. And now this kind of cleavage in society over religion no longer exists. Okay. But the parties still operate separately, and there is a real difference between these. The Christian Social Union tends to be far more conservative mm-hmm. than the Christian Democratic Union. A guy by the name of Soder, who is the leader of the Christian Social Union in Bavaria, he is much further to the right of Angela Merkel than you would think. He has taken some strong anti-immigrant positions, mm-hmm. anti-European Union positions, mm-hmm. whereas Angela Merkel, as the leader of the Christian Democratic Union, which is the Protestant aspect of the of this union, has been very open to refugees. If we remember this back in two thousand fifteen, right. yeah. during the refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. She has been much more open to immigration and she is staunchly pro-European Union, right? So there is this division in those regional areas of Germany. Did she ever have to worry about them leaving the Union? Yes. Yeah, okay. she, had, she had some issues and there, there were people, there was always concern that the Christian Social Union was not going to support Merkel. And there were concerns that this leader of the Christian Social Union, Soder, would challenge Merkel's leadership or even once Merkel retired, challenged the leadership of the Christian Democratic Union and tried to take control of the union in its entirety. Mm. Um, so there always is this, this very tense, not always, but there, there often is a very tense relationship here. I, I don't think there are too many credible threats that the Christian Social Union is going to abandon the Christian Democratic Union. It would be contrary to their interests. Right. Um, but it's been in recent decades that we've started to see this kind of schism. Okay. Um, where when issues of, say, immigration and nationality and the European Union have become more and more politicized. That's when we've started to see the, the schism more than we have in, in years past. Okay, that's good. So you have a bunch of small parties that can get in through the list system mm-hmm. that they probably couldn't get in any particular district. Yeah. And it's, but- important, it's important to note also, Germany has an electoral threshold Okay. So these smaller parties need to receive at least 5% of the vote nationwide to take a seat or in their um, state rather, in order to take a seat. They cannot win seats unless they reach that 5% threshold. And this is different from a country like Israel or the Netherlands, which doesn't really have a threshold at all. You get, you get votes, you get seats um, within reason. I mean, the Netherlands, they have 150 seats. So you need to get at least one 150th of the vote. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Okay. (laughs) So because no party 
had a majority of seats, as you said, a coalition needs to be formed. I would imagine like just basic left-right ideology plays a huge role in this. But I'm also assuming that, because when you mentioned like the Minister of Agriculture and Finance and all this stuff, part of the art of this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the art of this is like, hey, Free Democratic Party, if you come with us, we'll give you the Ministry of Finance. Finance. Yeah. Great, Absolutely. yeah. And, th- and then so if you don't get ministries that you want, you might not form the coalition. Absolutely. I mean, so your first statement that, I mean, right-left ideology matters here. Also, um, position on certain key issues. So in order to form a coalition in Germany right now, the most likely scenario for a majority coalition is probably going to be social Democrats, free Democrats, and Greens. So these free Democrats are these kind of center-right liberal party. And, and I mean liberal in the true sense of the word liberal, as in lower taxes, less government intervention, things like Econo- that. Economically liberal. Not, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, not American. Liberal. I mean, they're also all in favor of same-sex marriage, things like that. Okay. There's like less government. We, we are hands-off on government. Wait, who are the people in the United States who believe that? The the libertarians. Libertarians. Yeah, they, they would be they'd be pretty close to libertarians. Although even the free Democrats are like, well, yeah, government supported health care is absolutely important. Okay. We need to have that, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but they are they're 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 center right liberal in the idea of economic liberalism. Right? Sure. The Greens, obviously, they're environmental. Although there's this huge ecological package that is you know environmental. Uh, it also includes pro-European Union. Generally speaking, it is about direct democracy. It's not just about the environment. Um, it's anti-nuclear, mm-hmm. um, which is linked to, to climate and environment, but not, I mean, it started as anti-nuclear weapons, right? Right, yeah. this anti-nuclear position came out. But this party, the Green Party, clearly cares a lot about the environment. Um, Would they be considered to the left of the Social Democrats? This is where this kind of left-right doesn't help. It, it starts to kind of fall apart, right? Okay. Um, so the German Green Party always used to say, neither left nor right, but forward. Right? <laughs> that was how they talked about it. That's a nice slogan. I know. It, it's great, right? It's yeah. fantastic marketing. Putting them left or right. I mean, I think most of us would think of them as kind of left of the Social Democrats. Okay. But they have some odd points of view that probably, I mean, it's new left, right? As, as some of the, as some political scholars would call it. This like, this idea of if you've ever read kind of your political culture research, like Ronald Engelhart's, you know, postmodernism or postmaterialism, it's kind of in that vein of like, oh, we need to have say in government and we need more freedom and things like that. But we also want more government to help us achieve that freedom from government. It's very odd, but they clearly care about this issue of the environment. Sure. And they want more government intervention to create environmental protection. So for example, they want to reduce the usage of certain fertilizers and, and uh, restrict the, cre- the, the ranching of livestock to reduce carbon output. Okay. And they want to use the government to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, the Free Democratic Party is never going to be on board with this. Okay. Right? Um, this is like antithetical to everything the Free Democrats say and care about. Okay. So getting these two to fit together is going to be really hard. And yeah, the, the social Democrats might go and say to the Greens, oh, we'll give you the you know, Ministry of Agriculture, which is something they would absolutely want. Um, they might also want transportation or energy or something like that. Sure. And the Free Democrats might want finance. Great. But the Free Democrats- <laughs> Are you going to pay for everything <laughs> yeah. that the Ministry of Agriculture wants? <laughs> exactly, right? This okay. starts to become an issue. And then the Free Democrats at some point might say- we don't support these policies that the Greens support. We don't want to be part of this coalition anymore. And then what happens? They have elections every four years, right? Yes. But they can they, have... like, can a parliament fall? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The, so the president of Germany can dissolve a parliament. Germany has a really strange rule <laughs> because it's Germany. Right. Um, it's called the constructive vote of no confidence. Right? Constructive, like we're giving you well, like, it, what feedback? It's saying is, Kind of. Um, What it's saying is we can't take a chancellor out of the chancellorship unless we've agreed on somebody to replace that chancellor. Ah. 
right? So in the system, like say the Netherlands or uh, the UK even, yeah. although the UK is also has its hinky little rules, but a vote of no confidence basically gets rid of that, that prime minister, that, that leader. In Germany, 70%, uh, 80, 90, 99% of the parliament could be opposed to the chancellor. But if they can't agree on somebody with a majority to replace that chancellor, they can't replace that chancellor. So this could lead to a new election being called by the president, or it could just lead to a minority government in which that chancellor stays in office, but doesn't have a majority of the uh, seats backing the, the chancellor, which would mean that for every piece of legislation they wanted to get passed, they would have to cobble together a coalition of supporters for it. And as we know, as Americans, that could be very difficult. Okay, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> this sounds crazy. So you're telling me you put together a coalition, let's say there are three parties in it. Partway through your four-year term, one of the parties says, uh-uh, we're gone. Mm -hmm. Then let's say there are three other parties who were out of government. So the party that left and the three that were already out have to come up with who's going to replace the chancellor. And if exactly. they can do that, then they what take it to the president and say we can do this and then they kick out the ruling now two-party coalition they don't even need to go to the president they just need to have a vote of no confidence okay and then they say we have chosen this person but here's the problem with this current <laughs> constitution in the bundestag let's say the the free democrats go into a coalition with the greens and the social democrats okay right generally speaking that would get them to about 55 percent of uh, about yeah, about fifty five percent of the seats in the Bundestag. If the Free Democrats pull out, they're probably sitting at about forty two, forty three percent of the seats. Okay. The Free Democrats, the Christian Democratic Union, Christian Social Union. Okay, they might they might agree on oh we want this CDU leader, Christian Democratic Union leader, to be the chancellor. That does also not equal fifty percent plus one, because there's some other parties. We also have right. Dilinka which is the left party. These are Democrat, uh, democratic socialists. Yeah. These democratic socialists in Germany are true socialists, right? They differ from communists in one thing and one thing only. They think that socialism can come about through democratic means, whereas communists believe it needs revolution. So that's the only difference between these people, right? So the, the democratic socialists say, oh, well, we want nationalization of industry and things like that. And we want to do it through democratic means. The likelihood of the Free Democrats, the Christian Democratic Union, and the, so the Democratic so Socialist Party, the left, they're not going to come to an agreement on someone. And then there's another aspect to this. The alternative for Deutschland, yes. which is alternative for Germany, right. they're radical right. right. And they got about 11% of the seats. Yeah. So now you're going to have to get this kind of center-right liberal party together with a Christian Democratic Party, Which together with right. a Democratic center-right, yeah, together with a Democratic Socialist Party, together right. with a fascist party. They're never going to come to an agreement. Right. Right. Well, this is actually why one of the other possibilities is that we never start with a majority coalition, that oh. the SDP, uh, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, and the Greens just form a minority coalition. And uh, the president approves that, and that's that. And they start from that from, from that point. What I think is probably most likely, if I had to place a bet right now, if you said, take all your money, place a bet, I'd probably say the most likely scenario is a social democratic Green Party minority government. Really? But I don't think that's that much more likely than a coalition between the social democrats, the free democrats, and the greens. I think they can probably work that out. And this depends to a degree on the president. So let's take a quick break. Um, and sure. when we come back, we'll talk about the role of the president. This is Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. Welcome back to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. 
I'm Professor Floros, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. I'm speaking with Professor Christopher Williams from UA Little Rock. And we're talking about the German elections and kind of political parties and party systems. Professor Williams, if you will tell us what the point of the German president is. Sure. First of all, the, the German president is not directly elected. That's the important thing we have to we have to note. Indirectly elected by the states. Okay. Okay. So the public doesn't get a say on this. And generally speaking, the president has a ceremonial post, right? Except when it comes to forming governments. <laughs> that seems pretty like substantial <laughs> for a ceremonial position. Well, generally speaking, it hasn't been all that important. So we get this election. No one has a majority. So coalition needs to be formed. The president needs to choose which party is going to be asked to form the government. Oh. And generally speaking, yeah, because otherwise, who gets to who gets first crack at forming a government? This so, is the president's decision. Is it a he? I'm assuming it's a he. I believe it's, it's a he, a he, yes. Yeah. I believe it's so a he. So he could say, hey, Green Party, form a government, Absolutely. even if they came in third. Absolutely. And in Germany, generally, this hasn't happened. Okay. However, there is this one issue, and, and early on as these exit polls were coming in, um, and, and the early results of the election were coming in this last weekend in Germany, it wasn't clear which party, if either party was going to get more vote. They were both sitting in exit polls at, 50, at 25%. Mm-hmm. It wasn't clear that one party was going to be clearly the larger party um, between the, so, the Social Democratic Party and the Christian Democratic Union, Christian Social Union. Of course, if, say, they had the exact same number of seats in the legislature, which is a possibility, mm-hmm. the question becomes, which one do you ask? Mm. And generally, when this happens, a president would say, "Okay, what I'm going to do is this one party, meaning the Christian Democrats, lost a whole lot of vote. They they had been I think they lost almost nine percent, nine percentage points from the last election. And they, they lost like 50 seats. Yeah, it was a lot. Forty nine seats. It was a sizable loss. Yeah. Um, so and I, I think it was about nine percent percentage points in vote, whereas the Social Democrats increased, I think, 53 seats, if that's correct. The last thing I looked at was 54. 54. Okay. And they gained about 5% in, in their vote totals. So what could have, what the president could have said was, well, okay, even if the Christian Democratic Union was just a smidge ahead of the Social Democrats, the president could say, there's clearly no mandate here for the Christian Democratic Union, given that they lost all of these seats. The mandate sits with the Social Democratic Party. And they could have asked the Social Democratic Party. Luckily, we didn't have to go through that scenario. The Social mm-hmm. Democratic Party got a clear, I believe, 10, about 10 seat majority. Yes, in the 10. in in the Bundestag, and so that makes it very easy. And the president asked Olaf Scholz, who is the leader of the Social Democratic Party, to form a form a government. And he is currently in talks with the Free Democrats and the Green Party to try and work this coalition out. Now, after a certain amount of time, the president can simply say, "Forget this. I'm appointing a chancellor." What? Scholz is the chancellor, and that is the minority government. The president can do that. President doesn't normally do that. Huh. And minority governments are really odd in Germany. They don't happen all that often. Okay. Because generally speaking, presidents haven't been really big on this. Sure. But also, for most of Germany's post-war history, the fractionalization among parties in Germany has not been all that much. We've had two huge parties, right. the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats. And these two parties have dominated everything. And in fact, until it was 1998, we hadn't seen a government since the war, since World War II, that the Free Democrats weren't involved in. So oh. essentially, Christian Democrats would become the largest party. They'd form a coalition with the Free Democrats. Okay, they're done. They're, they're good. And then the Social Democrats would win a few elections later, more seats, and they'd form a coalition with the Free Democratic Party, huh. and they'd have a coalition. And the Free Democrats kept bouncing back and forth between the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats. Hmm. In 1998, the Social Democrats became the largest party and actually formed a coalition with the Greens for the first time ever. And this this was a big moment. This is a moment that normalized Green parties in Europe, said these are real parties and they are here to stay. So since then, we've seen greater fractionalization of the German party system, meaning we're getting more and more parties and we're seeing lower and lower vote totals for these two larger parties. If you had looked 25 years ago at the Social Democratic Party vote total from Sunday, you would have said, wow, they must have gotten killed. Right. Because 25, 26 percent of the vote is like 
it would have been one of their worst showings yeah. in the post-war period until about 2013, maybe 2009, where we started seeing people voting for these kind of what we call challenger parties, right? So parties like the Green Party, like the left, and like the alternative for, for Germany. We started to see that more in the last decade, 15 years. And that's led to these larger parties shrinking and making it harder to form these coalitions. Mm. So we may see minority coalitions in the future uh, more, more commonly. In terms of the electorate, do people have strong partisan affiliation or do they tend to support different parties in different elections? This is actually a really great question. There's a fantastic book. It's about 20 years old now. It's called Parties Without Partisans by uh, by Russell Dalton. It's edited by Russ Dalton, who was at, I believe, UC Irvine for 30 years. And this is looking at the idea that these normally incredibly strong partisan connections that existed throughout Europe and throughout the advanced democratic world, including the United States, have started to kind of disintegrate. So the Social Democratic Party was always just deeply connected with labor parties in Germany, mm-hmm. right? Just like the labor party, what's called the PVDA in the Netherlands, the party van der Arbeid, it's, it's the labor party, right? It was always deeply connected with uh, the labor unions, the labor movement. In, in the UK, we obviously have the, the British Labor Party, the UK mm-hmm. Labor Party. It's still controlled to a large degree by these labor unions. So there was this clear dichotomy for the longest period of the post-war history throughout Europe and in Germany in particular between workers, the working class, and the non-working class. And the Social Democrats were clearly working class. The Christian Democrats were more conservative. And then you had this group of people who were like, oh, we're, we're kind of liberal sitting in the middle, right? And we saw this in the UK too, right? Where you had the conservative Tories, you had the Labour Party, which is about working class people. And then you had the liberals stuck in the middle, which are a relic of a previous party system. And they just are holding on by the skin of their teeth. And we're seeing this in Germany too, right? The free Democrats are holding on by the skin of their teeth. They've actually grown a little, but at one point in the last decade or so, it looked like they might go by the wayside. Mm. And this is the same with the liberal Democrats in the UK. They look like they might go by the wayside and they've recovered a little, but not a lot. And the free Mm -hmm. Democrats have recovered to a degree, but not substantially. Mm. And what we're seeing now is, particularly among younger people, um, this clear fractionalization where they don't have a clear connection to a particular party or another. I'm thinking about the 2015 Syrian refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that really around the time that Angela Merkel decided not to, like after like 2016 or so, decided not yeah. to, to run because she got battered so badly over being so open to immigration? Yeah, I mean, she did get battered over that. She got battered hard on that. Um, the, the radical right alternative for Deutschland came after her. Even the Christian Social Union in Bavaria was was displeased. Um, I mean, there were reports that like the Christian Social Union wanted to create camps for refugees. And mm. in, in German in Germany, history, yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, it great. doesn't play well. Right. Um, you know, he got hit hard on that. The Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats tend to be basically on the same page on immigration. And importantly, mm. we've had what's called a, a Grosse Coalition or a GroCo, Grand Coalition in Germany, for a number of years now in which the Christian Democrats were the had the chancellorship, Angela Merkel, and the Social Democrats were in the coalition. So mm. it's a Grand Coalition across the, cent- the center point. And so a lot of these positions between the Christian Dems and the Social Dems started to become somewhat blurry. And they, they really didn't differentiate themselves too much on this issue. And in fact, <laughs> oh, this is so weird. For most of this election campaign, the social democratic leader who had been the minister of finance under Angela Merkel portrayed himself as the continuity candidate. He's the candidate who is going to continue the Merkel legacy because he was her deputy chancellor. He was the minister of finance, right? And the person from Angela Merkel's party was kind of being shut out and, and People were saying, oh, well, he's not the continuity candidate. He's different. Until at the very end, Angela Merkel finally came out and endorsed the person from her own party. <laughs> right? At the very end. At the very end, in the last week. Why right? did she wait so long? She, she said she wanted to stay out of the election. Then why did she get into the election? Because it was becoming apparently clear that the Christian Democrats were going to take a beating if she didn't. Mm. Right? We were starting to see the numbers 
diverging pretty quickly. The Social Democrats were pulling away. And at the very last week, we saw that gap close back up, right? That, that gap between the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats and the polling started to close again, just slightly, just a little. And a lot of people say, well, this is because Angela Merkel got involved and said, no, no, no. I think you should vote for the party that I belong to for my entire career, <laughs> right? And uh, not the party that's not ours and that's our main rival that is somehow saying they are the continuity of my chancellorship. Super weird, super unusual, particularly for our American sensibilities. Yeah, that is um, that is weird. But he was the deputy chancellor, right? He was the second in command. Exactly. And the minister of finance, who is, after the chancellor, the most important person possibly in Europe, right? <laughs> right, um, yes. <laughs> the minister of finance for Germany, the only person who might be more important is maybe the president of France, besides okay. the, Ger- the, chan- the German chancellor. Um, so this is... Like this guy has been important, right? And he was her deputy. So how do you say he's not the continuity candidate? He kind of is. What has the the leader of the Christian Democrats been doing all this time? I mean, like, was he in in one of the states doing something? Was he like a uh, junior minister? Like what was- I I believe he was the- uh, He was the first minister, prime minister of one of the states. And I can't remember off the top of my head which one it is. And okay. so, so he uh, wasn't in the federal government. I don't believe so. If I, I don't remember exactly. Okay. What was really interesting, though, is the Christian Democrats had a huge fight earlier this year over who the leadership was going to be. This guy, Armin uh, Lachette, who is the one who eventually got the nomina- nomination or nomination, became the leader of the Christian Democrats. They don't really do it in the nomination sense. He was essentially their chance- chancellor candidate. He was much more in that mold of Angela Merkel, much more moderate. And I'm blanking on the name of the person who who was challenging the main rival for the leadership, who was much more conservative mm-hmm. and and moving towards kind of that more radical right position, that more Christian social union. Like uh, we're a little skeptical of the European Union. We're not huge on immigrants. He was moving in that direction, and it was a fight. And there were a lot of people in the Christian Democratic Union and the Christian Social Union that thought that the eventual chancellor candidate uh, Lachette was not the strongest candidate. So moving forward, there's a concern that they're going to say, you see, look, he wasn't the strongest candidate and he lost. So let's go with someone much more conservative. There's, there's always that thought pattern that yeah. could happen. So you've mentioned the alternative uh, for, for Germany, yeah. yep, who is far right slash fascist slash anti-immigrant yeah. slash... Yeah, I mean, fascist is a hard word to okay. use in this case, simply because there is a smaller party. Oh my goodness. That's further right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that as Ger- I have, I have a, a German friend and co-author who said, oh, but they're, they're straight up Nazis. <laughs> right? Like this, so, this much like, smaller party. Yeah. yeah. They're called the national democratic party, which is remarkably similar to national socialist party. Right. Um, right. And, and they, they're super small. They get like 2% of the vote. So to call the alternative for Germany fascist, you're like, well, that's hard to do given that yeah. these people are here. Right. Okay. So, so fascist light. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can go with, with yeah. Diet fascist. Ah, good. Let's trademark that. Publish it. <laughs> and so Marine Le Pen's party in France. Yeah. There's have- Envelement National. Yeah. Yeah. We have the retreat of democracy in places like Hungary and Poland. Yeah. And I mean, in the Netherlands, you have the, the party for freedom, which freedom, that sounds great, right? Yeah. Mm, they're, they're kind of diet fascist too. Okay. Um, and, and you have the league in Italy, which actually got into government, became the, 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 the leader of government in Italy. They're clearly a, a far right party, even in like Spain, Mm. We've seen, which has a long history of fascist dictatorship. Sure. We've seen this party Vox start to rise up and, and enter into, into the national picture uh, electorally. And we have the Sweden Democrats, which, oh, they sound pretty nice. Who doesn't like Swedish dem- democracy? Well, they're kind of diet fascist too. Mm. Um, and we see this in uh, other parts of the, of the world as well. So this right wing... I mean, the Danish People's Party, uh, they're rising up throughout Europe, in fact. But the center-left party won in Germany. Mm-hmm. The center-left a center-left candidate won in the United States. Apparently, a center-left party won in Norway last month. Yes. 
So how do you reconcile both the winning of the slightly left groups in some places and these small far-right parties almost never make it into government, but they are, I mean, I think that the alternative for Germany actually has fewer seats this time around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you have these small but vocal minorities of folks well and even in poland and hungary they're running the country absolutely yes right so what is accounting for kind of the rise of the right what messages should people take about these center left parties as few as they are uh so winning this is a question wow so the the rise of the radical right is obviously something a lot of people are studying. And the research on this is super fascinating, if not completely clear. Okay. Right? There are a couple of explanations here, right? We saw like the Rassemblement National rise up in the 1970s as the Front National. So there's the French radical right party. Um, and we've saw, we've seen like the Danish People's Party uh, rising up about the same time in the 1970s. The alternative for Deutschland didn't come about until 2013. No. So Germany held that off and Vox in in Spain didn't come about until uh, the the 20, the 2010s as well. Is this Um, because all the people who fought Franco and, you know, suffered through World War Two are dead and dying? And so now the right can rise again because. Well, yeah, I I think that this does play a play a part into it. Right. Like that memory of this fascist dictatorship has faded. Of course, there are special dynamics to this and there are dynamics in each country. Right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So these kind of like early, early onset fascists, diet fascists, they, they kind of came about in a reactionary way to the politics of the 1960s, right? Okay. This kind of like new left movement of, the old left was all about economic equity, right? Social democracy was about, economics and making sure people have what they you know have a good quality of life and you know union labor issues and all of that right and then the 1960s came about neither of us are old enough to have lived through the 1960s thankfully this new politics of the 1960s was very much focused on identity and feeling important and kind of this this idea of me these feelings and that's fine right that's how you feel that's that's cool but it certainly led to reactionary forces of like, well, you're trying to degrade traditional society. Mm. And so we started to see that in Europe and these little tiny radical right parties kind of pop up. So like this, this ultra fascist party in, in Germany came about well before the alternative for Deutschland. So we started to see that in some of these countries, particularly France and Denmark. And then in 1992, Something very important in Europe happened. They signed the Treaty of Maastricht. Is that and how what, you say that? Maastricht, yeah. Oh, I'm I'm never going to remember that. But okay, Maastricht. Maastricht, yeah. You got to you got to get it back in the throat. Okay, that's not going to happen. But it's not. Mas- <laughs> I've been putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? I've been calling all it all Americans do. Right, Maastricht. Maastricht. Yeah. All Americans do that. Don't worry about that. Okay. Well, um, thank you for setting me straight. Uh, don't worry about it. So this this treaty is signed. And it creates the European Union. Right. So before this period, from the 1950s, the European Union existed as in various incarnation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the European Economic Community, for example, the European Coal and Steel Community was the beginning of it all. And generally speaking, the public said, we don't care. It doesn't matter to us. It's just some crazy thing that you elites are thinking up. It doesn't affect us. And then in 1992, power was given up. It moved from being this clearly confederal system, uh, even intergovernmental system, where it's almost like the UN, only a slightly different version, to becoming a clear system of government. And smaller parties arose and acted as what we call issue entrepreneurs. They picked this issue up and ran with it. Hmm. That this is the European Union taking away our sovereignty. It's making us accept French or Germans or Dutch or Italians or Spanish or whomever it may be. So the prime example of one of these parties is the UK Independence Party, United right. Kingdom Independence Party, or right. UKIP. UKIP. Who is almost solely responsible for Brexit. Right. Because UKIP scared the conservatives electorally beyond belief. They were worried that UKIP was going to 
take enough votes that they were going to lose elections, right? Because they have this first first past the post system in the UK. Right. They were worried about UKIP taking enough votes that they would end up losing. And then at the same time, UKIP was talking about the EU is taking our sovereignty, taking our power, subjugating us to other countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this caught on amongst not just the public, but a lot of elites too. So the alternative for Deutschland and Germany grew out of that. It was a group of people who left the Christian Democratic Union and took a definitively anti-EU position. Mm. Right? And this is where some of the parties in the Netherlands grew out of too, like the Party for, Free- uh, the Party for Freedom, the Forum for Democracy, uh, JA21. But I mean, okay, so fine. You don't like the European Union, but these... I mean, there are like white nationalists in these parties. Mm-hmm. They're anti-immigrant. Yeah. They're anti-Muslim. So, so where, how, how does all that? I mean, how does that link up with being? Yeah. Anti-EU. This is a great question because anti-EU is just one aspect of an anti-globalization attitude. Mm. It is nationalist. We don't want to give German power to these other countries. We want to keep German power for German people, which is a terrifying way to think about things, right? When Germans are saying, we want German power for German people. I believe that's how the Sudetenland got invaded. Right. Um, But this is kind of the way this thinks. They think about this. It's a protection of our culture, protection of our identity. And the EU is degrading that Mm. because it's forcing us to live by rules set by the French or the Dutch or the Belgians or the Italians or whomever else, the Luxembourgish. But the Germans are like the powerhouse in the EU. They are setting the the way. You are 100% correct. This doesn't change the perception here. And the Germans are by far the most powerful country in the European Union. France is a distant second. As much as Macron wants to be as important as the chancellor of Germany, he just isn't. Right. right? And I mean, this is kind of part of the, the humor of Brexit. The British wanted to leave the EU. They wanted to Brexit to get back their sovereignty. Well, guess what? They wanted a trade agreement because they didn't want their economy to implode, which it is currently doing. Right. right? And in order to do that, the EU is going to insist on them accepting the regulations of the European Union. Right. Which meant all the British were doing in this case was giving up was, their vote. Exactly. <laughs> they were giving up their vote on what the policies are going to be, but having to accept. Yeah, that never made sense to me. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense at all. Right. But this is asking people to think about these kind of identity issues. Right. And these economic issues as connected and, and these these institutional issues. I'm speaking with Professor Christopher Williams of the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. This is Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom. We'll be right back. back to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and my guest is UA Little Rock political science professor Christopher Williams. So let's do a, let's do a, a lightning round. Do I get points? No. Oh. It's, it's not okay. a quiz. It's just oh, a lightning sorry. round. I'll give you a smiley face sticker. If okay, I'll take the smiley face. Right. What practical difference in Germany does a change of leadership make? In this case, uh, a substantial amount, I think, because we're going from a uh, center-right-leaning government, in this case, to a center-left-leaning government. So we can expect, it's not going to be a huge difference, but I I do think that there's going to be kind of an increase in some of these traditional center-left policies, right? We're going to see increases in things like social services and and protection of those things. And we're also going to see substantial, uh, a greater focus on environmental issues because the Greens are going to be involved in this. Okay. Why didn't Angela Merkel run for her fifth term? And if she had, 
would she have won? Short answer, I don't know, and yes. Okay. I think I think she didn't run. I mean, it's 16 years. Yeah. It's a long time to be in power. Sure. Um, and she's getting older. I mean, I could see her just saying, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm exhausted. At the same time, she could have seen the writing on the wall that maybe she loses even more seats. Yeah. And and you don't want to be a you don't want to be a dying chancellor. She may have she she probably would have been the largest, the city would have been the largest vote getter, but it would have probably shrunk. Okay. And I can see her saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I've been here 16 years. Time for me to hand this off. Tell me a little bit about Olaf Scholz, the, the leader of the Social Democrats. Yeah. So he is more moderate than Social Democrats have been in the past. I think I think of him kind of in the in the mold of Joe Biden. OK. He's been the deputy chancellor for a while. Uh, he was minister of finance. Before that, he was uh, the mayor of Hamburg, uh, and Hamburg being probably one of the more left-leaning cities in all of Germany. Okay, um, but he's he's pretty moderate candidate, and he is by all accounts a, a likable and affable person. And this gives him some power to kind of cobble together this coalition, which he's going to be pulled to the left by the Greens and pulled to the right by the FDP, right? And, and even within his own party, there are people who think he's too moderate. Um, so, so they'll he's be happy have... if he gets pulled to the left. Yes. Um, so I, I do suspect he's going to kind of start to shift to the left to some degree. But I also think Germany is in such good shape, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. This is not the hardest job in the world, right? Um, they're doing pretty well by all accounts. That said... He needs to make sure that things don't get bad. Okay. Given another 25 years, do the Greens take the chancellorship? Oh, man. That's, I don't have to bet, right? I don't, you're not, there's no money on this. No money. Okay. And I'm still going to give you the sticker because we won't know for 25 years. Okay, perfect. Possibly. Greens have been gaining strength across Europe. They are the embodiment of this new left attitude. The Social Democrats have been losing support across Europe, despite these little upticks where they take power again. Young people are moving away from Social Democrats to Green parties. The Social Democratic, normal Social Democratic base, which is labor, is starting to shrink. Mm -hmm. I, I do think the Greens are going to see some resurgence in a lot of these countries, particularly countries that use some sort of mixed member proportionality or just straight proportional representation. Okay. Why should people outside of Germany care about the German election? This is a great question and a very clear one. A lot of people think the largest partner of the United States is China. Okay. The largest trade partner? It's uh-huh. not true. The largest trade partner of the United States is the European Union. We're talking nearly a half a trillion dollars worth of, of trade okay. um, or exports from the US to, their, to, to the EU and, and about the same coming back. The EU is our largest trade partner and Germany is by far the most important country in the European Union. And they have outsized power when it comes to EU economic positions. Okay. They have a substantial amount of control over the European Central Bank, which is like the, the equivalent of the U.S. Federal Reserve. Right. right. Huge power over that. And they can steer EU trade policy in many directions. If something happens in the, Europe, in the EU economic world or in, in trade between the EU and the U.S., we will feel it. And there's another aspect to this, too. The Green Party is really interesting here for your listeners here in Illinois. Illinois is an agricultural state. I mean, okay. yes, Chicago is huge, but Illinois produces a lot of agriculture. The Midwest in general, right? Sure. The Green Party wants to restrict fertilizer use in Germany because they say it's bad for the, uh, for the environment. Mm. Right? They want to restrict livestock raising because it's bad for the environment. Mm. This is going to lead to food shortages, right? They're gonna, their production is going to decrease. There's no doubt about that. So where does that difference get made up? They and buy it from the breadbasket of America. That's kind of the idea. Now, of course, there's another aspect to this. But wait a minute. Wouldn't they, like, they're anti-GMO, so... That was the next thing. Okay. That was to get to. Okay. The Greens are virulently anti-GMO. 
Which is genetically modified organisms. Correct. Okay. All right. And this is despite all the scientific evidence on this, they don't want it. So they have a decision to make. Do they accept American GMO food or do they see their food prices go up? And now there's another aspect to this. Food prices go up. Well, that leads to some very unhappy voters. Right. And unhappy voters are more likely to go to anti-system parties like the left or the alternative for Germany, Mm. which could have some ramifications down the road. And the last thing the U.S. wants is the most important country in the European Union being controlled by a radical right or a radical left party, or at least even having say in the government. That would be problematic for, for our economics. We've had a great conversation today with Professor Christopher Williams, a political scientist from the University of Arkansas, Little Rock. Professor Williams, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thanks for joining me today in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. As always, you can reach out to me with comments, questions, issues, problems, suggestions, or praise at Dr. Floros on Twitter. Join me next week in the classroom for my conversation with Professor Amy Erica Smith, a Brazilian politics expert and candidate for the Ames, Iowa Community School District. You won't want to miss it. But that's all I've got for this week. I'm Professor Floros, class dismissed.